0: In a way, it was sort of the prehistory of computer science, because if you look at the calendar, um, you know, 1995 was when everything really changed and it it moved computer science from just a sort of another field of study into a, a part of every field of study, right? Right. Think about the, the redemptive act of pulling out a text that is on its way out of this world. Mm. And then we cross this chasm because digitization creates a kind of eternal life uh, that we're, you know, what you what you digitize is no longer subject to material degradation. It's digital and, and if we preserve it right, it will be digital and digitally perfect from now on. So the, the two things that I have thought about actually are this idea of, of a redemptive act, um, which resonates with the Christian mandate. And that is that, because God is capable of redemption. He has made us capable of that too. And our presence in this world can be an act of redemption, right? Mm. And then the other thing is this idea of eternal life, of life beyond the physical frame. And so it's sort of a metaphor for that idea, which is also a strong Christian idea is that this world is not our home, right? Mm -hmm. Welcome to this episode
1: of the Upwards podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Hummel. I'm excited today to introduce this conversation with Brent Seals, who's the Gill Professor and Chair of Computer Science at the University of Kentucky. He's also a principal investigator for the Digital Restoration Initiative. And these titles should go to show that Brent is a world-class scholar in computer science and digital imaging. This conversation ranged widely from Brent's training at University of Wisconsin-Madison in computer science, where he got a PhD, to his work with cultural heritage artifacts and imaging them and extracting data from them, to our thoughts on science fiction, to even talking about AI and, and Brent's thoughts on AI. He's been working with AI going all the way back to the 1980s. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brent Seals. Glad to be here on the podcast with Brent Seals. Welcome, Brent. Well, thank you, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, Brent, you've been staying here in Madison for the week as sort of a guest of Upper House.
0: How's the week been going? It's been fantastic to be here and to enjoy the environment that you have and interact with the people. The staff's amazing. Awesome. a great week. Awesome. And I know you have
1: some connections, uh, particularly the UW. We'll get to those. But we're happy to have you here. We're actually talking on the, uh, on the day of a big public lecture you'll be giving this evening that will include some discussion of AI in it, and we'll get to that topic at the end of this conversation as well. I thought we'd start, Brent. uh, We really want to get to know who you are, um, uh, what you do, and then just as a a foreshadowing for the audience, Brent's a leading scholar, a leading practitioner in computer science and a particular part of the world of computer science with digital imaging. So we're going to get to that and, and try to explore some of what it's been like to be in the field of computer science from basically the 80s to today, which is a really important period of computer science history, and then some of the particular work uh, you've been doing. But let's start with, with your background. Brent, just give us a sense of who you are, where you come from, and then
0: what you do today, and then
1: we'll fill in the gaps uh,
0: in between those. Well, my academic background started here, really, when I um, went to graduate school and and stayed five years in Madison from nineteen eighty six to ninety one, and got my computer science Ph.D. here. Mm. Um, before that, I had been uh, an undergraduate in the South Louisiana, and I was raised in Western New York, so outside of Niagara Falls and Buffalo. What,
1: what drew you to Louisiana for your undergrad? That's a far far away from New York.
0: Yeah, that was a big step. I was eager to get out of my home. (laughs) Um, I I think that's true for most 17, 18 year olds. And uh, I had experience with the Deep South because my father was from Eastern Texas, Mm -hmm. which borders uh, Louisiana and and opened up that part of the country as an avenue for me, maybe academically. So tell us a bit about growing up in New York
1: um, and particularly, I think, is interested in um, your relationship to Christianity. Yeah, wh- whatever you want to share about uh, about that part of your life.
0: Sure. I grew up in a Christian home, and my grandparents were uh, the founding members of a, a Christian and Missionary Alliance church in Springville, New York. And uh, that was uh, my, my maternal grandmother and grandfather. And so my mom was the pianist for the church, and uh, we grew up uh, doing the music and also worshiping there. Uh, and I stayed in that church through my teen years and then until I left. When did you start uh becoming interested in computers
1: or in computer science as a field?
0: Well, my childhood spanned the the moon landings. I was mm. 5 when uh Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and the the rapid acceleration of technology during the 70s was inspiring, but what really did it for me, what captured my imagination was what was going on in Silicon Valley with the uh Steve Jobs Story, mm. Apple computers that, that came online about when I was in in high school. Mm. And we were converting curriculum in high school. We, uh, the teachers were trying to figure out how to incorporate computation into what they were offering. And I was on the forefront of that. It was a very exciting moment for me. Can you tell us just a bit what was it what was so exciting about it for you? Well, my first uh, experience with computing in high school was through punch cards, that got sent off overnight to a, uh, you know, a collecting area that that sort of ran them. And then we'd find out what happened the next day. And uh, th- that we lived through the transformation from that to a Steve Jobs, you know, Apple computer that showed up in a, a room in our campus. And the difference between those two things was night and day. I could feel the acceleration and the excitement around it. Mm. Did you have computers in the home? Was that part of uh, sort of how you grew to live? No, we did not have any computers at home. So uh, the school was a a real attractor because that's where the the machine was. We had small things that you you could do, like calculators. Believe it or not, hand calculators weren't Mm -hmm. a thing until the early seventies. So, and some of the programmable ones were just coming out near the end of that period. And uh, that was something I did. I got a small handheld and you'd call it a graphing calculator now. And Figured out how to code up something on that, you know, which was fun. So, I mean, I
1: think a lot of people, me included, when I was young, I was really interested in computers. I even took a Cisco networking course at my high school. Um, but I did not make it a career choice. I ultimately was happy to play computer games and do other things on computers. Did you know, even in high school, that you wanted to make that your career, sort of, that, you know, sort of specialize in that, really learn it deeply and actually try to make money from it?
0: I wasn't really sure. You know, I, I wasn't, uh, it was exciting to me and I, I had aptitude, but I was also a musician and I played uh, mm-hmm. classical violin. And so I hedged my bets and I went as a double major playing violin, thinking, you know, maybe that could evolve into something. I didn't know if I was going to be a good player or a bad player. And, uh, and then also a computer science major, because I did want to explore what was happening at the university level, not just, you know, in my high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had one Apple computer and that was it. So, you know, that gave me a taste of what was coming. But, you know, when I got to university, the whole world opened up. Yeah, what what happened to the violin playing? I I went to to the deep south to uh, University of Southwestern Louisiana in Lafayette. I went there on an orchestral scholarship. Mm. I played in the orchestra the first two years of my career there, and I also uh, picked up an academic scholarship. So. I carried both of those paths forward for for a couple of years until it became clear I couldn't really do both and do them both well. Um, my music teacher sat me down and gave me a, my music teacher sat me down and gave me a, a nice lesson in helping me understand where my talents were, and he told me that I was a good player but probably not a great player, hmm. and that he could tell that I probably could be a great computer scientist. Hmm. So that helped me um, be able to understand that maybe music was going to be my avocation but not my vocation makes me think of
1: sometimes some of the best conversations not always but sometimes are blessings when people actually tell you what you're not good at or what what you need to uh, yeah treat as a hobby more than uh, more than the central thing and that can be really clarifying uh, at times
0: no honestly I've always been grateful to Bill Hayden for telling me that he was a great violinist and he was my teacher he'd come Mm -hmm. from Juilliard and I was lucky to have him Mm -hmm. in the Deep South and I've taken that lesson on to some of my students. You know, as as I'm now a professor, uh, sometimes it's really important for them to hear you know what they're good at and what they're not. Well, uh, so you you have a, a computer science
1: degree. Um, I don't know I don't know a ton about that world, but I know that um, not everyone goes on to graduate work after that. In fact, uh, many people jump right into the um, private industry or, or other areas. What made you want to go to grad school and, and sort of Really uh, dive into the scholarly academic part of it.
0: What was happening in Louisiana at the time, and the university actually called itself Silicon Bayou. <laughs> okay. There's actually a lot of uh, great computer science going on in Lafayette, Louisiana at the Interesting. time. Interesting. But it was driving the oil industry because mm-hmm. refineries, you know, were doing optimization. It was it, it, it was a lot of development in that region around uh, energy, mm. and so most of my colleagues went with their undergraduate degree into the industry. And they they followed that route. What I felt though was that I wasn't prepared yet. Uh, I I needed to know more about what was happening in the field. And one of the things that helped me know that was that I took the um, the GRE exam, and there was actually a, a subject exam on the GRE in computer science. Hmm. And I didn't do very well on it because there were parts of our curriculum that didn't cover what was asked on the GRE subject exam. Hmm. And so what it sort of told me is that I needed to bake just a little bit longer to make sure that I really knew what the field was about and where my place in it was going to be. And graduate school is my path. And uh, UW, how did that emerge on on the radar as the place you'd want to go? Uh, UW was ranked in the top 10 public universities in computer science at the time. And I had this vision of Wis- Wisconsin that, of course, wasn't accurate, but it was very positive And I came up to visit. What they offered me when I applied was a a guaranteed four years of funding. And I figured if I couldn't get a PhD in four or five years, I should move on anyway. So it just seemed like economically a very responsible move. It also was just a beautiful trip. I came here and I saw the lakes and I became enamored with uh, the department, Mm -hmm. which had the kind of energy I'd never seen before. And it, it really did feel like a top 10 department. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think uh, many of us who I also went
1: to grad school at UW, we do that trip to figure out if UW is the place to come. And it's just a beautiful city. And for most people, it becomes a good decision, uh, and it's it actually indicative of certain parts of the year, not all parts of the year, when you come in the spring uh, for the next fall. Um, well, I think it'd be interesting to just hear what it was like to be a grad student in computer science in the late 80s, early 90s. And I know you teach grad students today, so I don't know how, how similar is it today versus 30 years ago. Is it the same type of work, or I know it's obviously different equipment and instruments you're using but what was it like to be a, a grad student? Uh, what, what's the type of work you did?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that in a while, but uh, it was pre-internet, okay? So yeah. um, the field was completely different in terms of the way we ran the equipment and the way that you had to gather around the equipment. So we had places you had to actually come and be on site. Uh, I would say it's, it was a lot more social in the sense that we were gathered together on the machines, you know, in the same rooms, and that was required because you didn't have connections at home where you could, you know, ubiquitously connect to the machine. And I think also the field had not yet gone to the place where the personal computer uh, was in every home. Mm -hmm. And certainly mobile computing hadn't happened. In a way, it was sort of the prehistory of computer science because if you look at the calendar, um, you know, 1995 was when everything really changed and it it moved computer science from just a sort of another field of study into uh, a part of every field of study, right? Right. Right. Um,
1: So I've read a few books on the history of Silicon Valley and, and early computing. And one of the images that I remember from that is this this reality that, you know, there were places on Stanford or wherever where there were computers. And if you wanted to use it, you had to reserve a time on it. And you and you know, the famous stories are people. Have big breakthroughs, but they're reserving the computer from like two to three a.m. on Thursday mornings or something. And was that the type? Of, does that resonate with with how it was at UW at the time? Like you were sort of very social, as you mentioned, but jockeying for limited time with the few computers that were available.
0: Yeah, that's right. And more of that happened during my undergraduate period from eighty two to eighty six. We were moving toward deployed personal computers, but the computers were all networked, and they still had to you know talk to to servers and. And so there was reserving time. There were um, machine rooms where you had to go in, and that's where all the machines were. And these these things have all, you know, gone the way of the dinosaur. But that's the way it worked at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds it sounds very
1: uh, frustrating. <laughs> Someone in the 21st century. That that's how. Uh, but, but I guess it's how you know anything like a library or a lab would have a similar dynamic where there's you know certain hours you have to go there to actually access the things that are in there but I think with computers we just you know we all carry them around uh, all the time now um, well you know one other track as you're in grad school is that you're um, uh, you're obviously thinking about what's next um, after grad school and we talked a bit, a bit about this last night when we were meeting with some students but I'm um, just the the question of sort of discerning where to go after grad school with a PhD in computer science Um, Yeah, just talk through what what were you thinking uh, as you were ending uh, grad school and and ultimately where did you uh, land
0: after that? Well, it was difficult to know. We'd spent five years here, my wife and I, and we uh, together graduated, my wife with her master's degree and and me with my PhD, and uh, and went off from there. And it seemed like the university life was going to be the right thing for me. I really enjoyed the teaching that I'd done and the research environment was one that inspired me. But at the time, academic positions were few and far between. It was a difficult period economically. So I did explore the commercial side. And I, what I just found is that I, I wasn't getting excited by the um, directions the products were going. And mm. you know, there were possible spots in the defense community, but that didn't excite me. And I really didn't know what, what to do. So I think I went to my first academic job with the idea that I would I would see how it went. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so describe with us, well, where did you land and, um, and what was that job like? I ended up at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky, and it was a small department and there was a faculty member there who had left Wisconsin's department, actually, hmm. and so knew very well my advisor and uh, probably really helped make a way for me there. The department gave me an opportunity to build my own thing, which was exciting because other departments that it could have gone to were either less developed than that, maybe mm-hmm. not even a graduate program, or, you know, we're super developed where, you know, I might not have a chance for a while to build my own program or, or think outside the box on, you know, the direction my research might go. So it, at the time, I, I don't think I, I saw it as the perfect fit, mm-hmm. but then we grew into something that actually fit really well. Yeah. And that's an interesting dynamic.
1: Uh, I remember we were talking about this yesterday that maybe your top, sort of on on a piece of paper, top ranked places might not have actually been the the most, uh, the healthiest places or the most, with the most potential um, for an an incoming young scholar, because there's so much, uh, there's bigger names in the department. There's uh, so much attention and structure already. But in some of the, the less uh, centralized places, maybe a place like Kentucky, there was actually a lot more open area to dream up new things and, and I guess develop your own team as well.
0: Well, that's right. And I also started to realize that one of the things that was a driver for me was uh, the interaction with students and being able to see them develop. The student groups that we had in, in the day, you know, in the 90s when I was first starting my career were, they were amazing people, you know. I mean, they were coming from Appalachia or from, you know, Southern Kentucky, Northern Tennessee, you know, those areas. And the opportunity they had at, at Kentucky, you know, was the biggest thing they could imagine. And and then I, I got to see them develop. Yeah. I, I'm not sure it would have been the same vibe for me anyway at a place like MIT or or UC Berkeley. Those are the places that people before me from Wisconsin were going yeah. uh, to get faculty positions. And, and yeah, I did kind of miss the idea that I would be associated with a name that had that kind of cachet, mm-hmm. uh, because the University of Kentucky wasn't going to be on anyone's top ten list for branding, right? Right. Uh, and but then I quickly resolved my, myself to the idea that, um, you know, maybe the brand is is really not as important as you know what I'm enabled to do, mm-hmm. and if it aligns, then that's where the important part is. When okay, so you're at Kentucky. Most
1: people, if they've heard of you, probably know you for. Your work around digital imaging and cultural heritage pieces, ancient texts, was that always part of your research profile or is that something that developed and and how did that become the thing that you really spent a lot of time focusing on?
0: The things that I'm known for now, especially around heritage science, e- evolved fairly late actually in my career. Uh, they were only a part of the portfolio because I'm an imaging specialist and I did computer vision here at Wisconsin. Uh, that thread found its way into a lot of different applications. So I had done work in surgery, for example, Mm. uh, in theaters where a camera is crucial for being able to do a surgical procedure, uh, in places uh, around visualization, where you want to set up an environment so that someone can remote control an object. Uh, We also had uh, work that we were doing in in navigation. So I'd worked a little bit in Europe on... uh, Self-navigation for space exploration, for example. So mm. those those things were all there. But then when the internet happened, and especially the move toward digital libraries occurred, and imaging was so prominent a part of that, uh, it sort of pushed me toward antiquities and digitizing objects. And what were the first types of objects? You mentioned antiquities. There,
1: what were the th- what were the types of things that you were imaging? And and I assume people were inviting you to do this or or wanting this. What was the early part of that uh, sort of that that new
0: type of work like early on, it was really just about facsimile uh, digitization was, was new. And the idea was that we could create a model, a proxy that could be broadcast on a network. That was what the uh, World Wide web was all about, right? The protocol and then the remote network that allowed you to access information. So we wanted the information to be visual and to be immersive. And so the, the idea was to build a, a very high fidelity model of, of something that maybe is in a museum or a library, let's say it's a painting, and then allow someone remotely to experience that painting. Right. And the the step required that I was interested in to do that was all about making that digital model. Right, so uh,
1: it makes sense to me how you would scan something flat, like a piece of paper or a painting, but what you're really well known for, uh, or at least how I know you, is for scanning uh, you know, things that are folded or crumpled up or three-dimensional. Uh, how much harder is it to go from 2D to 3D on that type of stuff?
0: Well, in fact, we were doing 3D at the very beginning, but the idea was just to make a facsimile. It wasn't yeah. to extract any new information or to do anything other than make a, an accurate representation and then transmit it over the network. So we were doing the acquisition and then the manipulation of all of that modeling and then the end display and those were sort of the three phases and my work fit into that that pipeline you know mm-hmm. perfectly what became apparent though was that uh we were going to move not from just making facsimile but from collecting data and that mm. that shift over that decade was something that I I would like to believe we we pioneered or at least we're on the frontier of because it was a shift in thinking about the digital library it's like we're not just going to make copies of things that you can see remotely. Yeah. We're going to actually collect data, maybe even over collect data that can tell us much more about the objects than just how they look. How are they aging? Is there anything hidden that we can reveal? Uh, Can we run a simulation using what we collected to be able to tell something more about how this object behaves, right? All of those became new questions we could pose and we could answer. If we started to think about the process as more than just facsimile. Is there any moment as you're developing this? And by the way, you said this decade. What what decade are you thinking of? Well, that was the aughts. The aughts. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, because that was, you know, five years after the internet, everybody was worried about just accessing the data. But soon we started to change our mindset uh, from just digitization, right? And acquisition to this broader idea of data collection around new questions that we could pose and answer right okay so the shift from from mere
1: imaging to actually extracting data were there any moments as you were making that shift where it really clicked for you that this is this has potential in in sort of a way that could be revolutionary for the way we understand particularly ancient texts
0: oh absolutely early on one of my projects was an imaging project with uh it started out with the beowulf manuscript as being central but a bigger collection at the British Library that included many more manuscripts than just that mm. that iconic one. We were imaging, and this was in partnership with a professor in uh, the English department who was a medievalist at the University of Kentucky. We were imaging using different spectral components. So you hit the manuscript with a part of the spectrum that maybe isn't even visible to your naked eye, like infrared. Mm. And then you'd image that to see if it would create the ability to see more on the page than you could with the naked eye. And that was when I started to put it all together. It's like, wait a minute, we're we're now extracting more than just a facsimile of what you would see if you sat in the room and looked at it. Mm. We're actually giving you a view of this thing that you would never be able to see if you just sat there and looked at it, right? So that, that was a huge kind of leap forward, an aha moment, and we started to think, okay, what are the other ways that we could do this? And it's an aha moment for you. How did you...
1: How was your work received within the museum archaeology curating community? Like were they how did they respond to this idea, pretty revolutionary idea that many of the things they were holding that maybe they they there was significance, but they there was much more significance if you could actually read what they were. And you're coming in as a computer scientist, I'm sure you have a team. Were they eager to share those things with you, or was that a a case you had to make?
0: It was a case I had to make. I think most of the diffusion of these new technologies into fields, uh, meet with resistance initially because people are skeptical as to whether a true transformation is going to take place or, or if anything new is really going to come of it. Mm. But you know, computer science, even going back to the community, I fell as an undergrad in the way that we had to do computer science. It's always been collaborative, collaborative for me. Mm. That collaboration is compelling. Mm. And I don't mean just within computer science, but across fields. I mean, even back in my Wisconsin days, uh, the the center for the study of the atmosphere and climate science was almost connected to the computer science building. They were right across the street, mm. and and those guys participated in seminars. And it was an application where computing clearly was going to play a role because understanding climate, right, is fundamentally, you know, tied to these big models that we run in simulation. So yeah, I've always known the collaborative part was there, and making the case in heritage science, um, it had its own. Challenges, but ultimately, of course, people could see, you know, the power of what was happening. Right.
1: Um, okay. So you you have these this experience at the British Museum. Clearly, there's a lot of potential here. So you've been do, but you've been doing this work since then. So it's been another you know 15 years or so. Just give us a sense. What's is there a highlight or sort of a maybe the highlights in the future and you're excited about it? But what, what's the what's the sort of defining mark of this this new way of 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 really analyzing um, these ancient texts that we couldn't read otherwise.
0: Let's see, what's the metaphor for people who ski in Wisconsin? I I think I got out over my skis a little bit uh, (laughs) with some of the things that we wanted to do, but the technology wouldn't really support it at the Mm -hmm. time. So there were some things like using computed tomography to see inside an object. We were really uh, advanced on that thinking, but the technology wasn't as advanced as what we wanted to do. So some of that came in underneath us. Mm. But realizing the potential of that, in the old days, you would take an object, like a closed book that can't be opened, and you would make a model just of what you could see. And you would concede that we can't open it. Mm. So the model that we would deliver would be what it looks like. Mm -hmm. But tomography, x-ray, and other kinds of imaging allow us to open up the interior of that. Even if it's non invasive. And then we have a completely new world of data, right? Not facsimile mm-hmm. that we can then work on algorithmically. And we knew that was going to be a thing in the, in the aughts. Um, and that's been almost 20 years ago now. But it's taken a while for the technology to catch up to the place where, uh, that's robust, where we can just do that every day. Yeah. And we're there now. And, and do you do that?
1: Is that sort of the defining work you're doing now at Kentucky? Is this type of, um, Uh, heritage work with all different types of objects
0: it is we narrowed down our focus to a few iconic objects that no one had ever tackled before Mm. because there were no known methods that could get at what might be inside Mm. and so over time we made contributions you know in in a lot of these different fields flattening out wrinkled manuscript papers for example or using ultraviolet light to see things that otherwise would be erased to the naked eye. But, but ultimately, our place, I think, in the world has come from the interior of objects that cannot be opened at all and doing that completely non-invasively using x-ray.
1: What are, what are some of the, the things you, you've decided or you did in the recent
0: past that are these, these uh, sticky problems? Uh... We've had two or three really amazing results that have come from uh, our work in advancing the software and, and our thinking around this problem. One is with a manuscript in the Morgan Library, which was established by J.P. Morgan uh, and uh, exists in, in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And uh, I don't know if it's lower Manhattan, but the Morgan Library is in Manhattan, and uh, they have this manuscript there, uh, which J.P. Morgan acquired in the 60s. And it's one of the earliest copies of the Acts of the Apostles. So it's hmm. a, it's a biblical manuscript. Um, it's damaged fairly badly, and so the pages can't be turned. And so we were able to work with the Morgan Library to be able to image it using tomography, mm. and we can pull out every one of the pages uh, non-invasively using virtual unwrapping. And so it's been an amazing experience to do that work. And also, the binding of this of this particular manuscript is a transitional binding. It's uh it's a binding that shows how. Book binding evolves over time. So it's kind of a, a dual you know manuscript where you also have this this binding part that makes it really, really valuable. And of course, we didn't have to damage it or even do any restoration. Uh, we put it into the machine, collected the data, and from there it was all virtual and wrapping. That's fascinating. I
1: That's a, one example, the the um, the book of, of Acts. I know you've done other biblical related uh, materials well. Is there anything as a Christian, is there anything, is there an extra dimension of either stress or excitement when you're working with documents that might actually, you know, affect potentially or at least uh, fill in uh, what we know about the history of the Bible, the history of the church? I imagine that could be a little a little more invested interest if it's if it's coming from your religious tradition, but maybe not.
0: Well, no, I mean I um, I am a Christian, and this material is is valuable to me for more reasons than just you know its historicity or mm-hmm. or, or its rarity, right? I uh, I think that I I don't spend a lot of time though worrying about mm. what something might reveal, and I guess that's because you know going back to my religious experience here in Madison you know, all truth is God's truth, right? It's sort of a reformed idea that we learned in in church here, right at Geneva Chapel, right? We talked about that and the idea that when we we reveal through our work, you know, things that we believe are true, facts, uh, stories, uh, we, don't, we don't fear those things because it's all part of what God's done, what God's created. And so I've thought more about, um, you know, how do I stay true to what I'm supposed to be doing and who should I be working with, you know, who can fill in the parts that I'm not very good at because I am not a biblical scholar and I don't really read the ancient languages. So, you know, I need to have teams of people who are willing to work with me and maybe they worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not sure. But I've been more, you know, captured just by the wonder of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if you see how some of these things look, I've learned to put on the the glasses of wonder and awe mm. to realize that this thing, 2,000 years old, that looks terrible on the outside is maybe one of the most valuable things in the collection once we realize what's inside. Right. Yeah. And I can imagine... I. I I hear you like
1: worry worries one potential way. I think there's also just like an excitement. Maybe that's what you were just describing of um, of some of the importance of some of this stuff could be. I wonder if you've ever reflect as I just look at what you do and particularly, you know, there's an interesting uh, uh, sort of media mediated way that I understand what you do, which is it's usually depicted through like uh, a documentary or a film or something where there's obviously a lot of uh, visual representation of what the process actually is and it makes it look like, almost like magic right it's it sort of you see this really grainy thing thing or like a piece of charcoal that's actually a, a scroll and then sort of there's special effects on the screen that are making it and then suddenly you're reading an ancient language I wonder um, obviously that's a way to just give us lay people an understanding of of the process but it does look to me like there's an interesting theological or uh, Christian perspective on this, which is something about pulling things out of a natural uh, process, or or sort of if you were to leave these things without this technology, um, they would be inaccessible to humans. But through the technology, it does in in a in some way do a miraculous thing. It it, it allows you to do something you people before you know the 20th century certainly could never imagine actually doing. Do you ever reflect on that? Like just how um, sort of interesting and almost, uh, and potentially
0: resonant with a Christian worldview this type of uh, work is? Well, I have thought about that. And, you know, in, in prior interviews, I sometimes have used the word redemption, which is mm. primarily now a religious word. Mm. But think about the, the redemptive act of pulling out a text that, is on its way out of this world Mm. and then we cross this chasm because digitization creates a kind of eternal life uh that we're you know what you what you digitize is no longer subject to material degradation it's digital and and if we preserve it right it will be digital and digitally perfect from now on Mm -hmm. so the the two things that i have thought about actually are this idea of of a redemptive act which resonates with the Christian mandate, and that is that because God is capable of redemption, he has made us capable of that too, and our presence in this world can be an act of redemption, right? Mm. And then the other thing is this idea of eternal life, of life beyond the physical frame, and so it's sort of a metaphor for that idea, which is also a strong Christian idea, is that this world is not our home, right? Mm-hmm very good reflections that's that's deeper than I've I thought about
1: it, but that's that's very interesting and yeah I think I think there's a lot of types of work that have these redemptive uh, elements to them but it's a very interesting one when you tie it with also this this interesting digital eternal <laughs> eternal state um okay two more two more big topics I want to talk about the first is just getting some of your perspective as someone who's been on uh sort of right in the midst of the rise of computer science from the 90s from the 80s to today and as you mentioned, it's now become part of every, essentially every endeavor in, certainly in the academy um, and in industry as well. Computers are involved, computer scientists are needed. I wonder, um, yeah, any general thoughts on just sort of the, you you, you mentioned a little, but just the the career of computer science as a field and how it's uh, sort of, I know here at UW, it's the largest major. Um, that was probably not the case in the the 1980s or 19 in fact i think it was just a few years ago that it became the largest one but how as as a professor for all those years how have you observed computer science develop within the broader higher education world
0: well it it has diffused into every field and i mean that's gratifying because the the field has created tools that are usable enough and concepts that are usable enough that other fields can simply integrate them and then build and we're not going to you know move away from the need For people to continue to innovate in the pure computer space but we've created this whole new set of of you know interplays right between the tools and the concepts that are now diffused into new areas so you have data science people who are working in hospitals you have data scientists who are working for sports teams Mm -hmm. right you have developers who are working in financial institutions Mm -hmm. uh, trying to keep people from stealing your credit card and so forth and so on, right? I mean, how how can I be anything but really excited about uh, seeing a field that I sort of just stumbled into um, because of the enthusiasm back in the day of people like Steve Jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, grow to the point where you know it's it's a it's a global thing and it's diffused into literally every area of our lives. Yeah, does that diffusion have any? I'll just ask it directly. Any
1: downsides? And I think particularly about like teaching. Like if you're teaching in a computer science class, I, I assume at some point, maybe back in the 90s or maybe early 90s or something, you could assume that most of the people in the class were going in a certain career trajectory. And so it'd be very clear what to teach them to get them there. And as you just mentioned, th- th- that's not the case anymore. How have you seen teaching change? And has this ch- has it been a challenge that sort of computer science people are coming into your classroom for one of hundreds of different reasons of what they want to actually use it for?
0: I would say for me, it happened about the late aughts, 2008, 2009, the iPhone was out. Social media was was really on the uptake. And what I saw was the acceleration of an adoption of, of uh, computing uh, has had exceeded the capacity of the institution of higher ed, right? Mm. To, to sort of keep up in terms of what they offered and the curriculum. And so there is a downside. I mean, people are eager to adopt new things. And sometimes uh, those new things aren't incredibly healthy. I think we're seeing now studies around social media, let's just take mm-hmm. that, and some of the downsides of teenage immersion in social media uh, that we never really anticipated. And parents have been so eager to adopt the devices and the network and the content uh, that maybe they've not been cautious enough, right, about allowing people to take a deep dive into a what can be sort of a cesspool, right, of concepts and and interactions that are just not appropriate for a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old. Really. Mm. So that's just one example of where there's a huge downside, right? And I think it's the role of the university and the computer science department to try to have a voice in this. And I, I don't know that we've been that good at doing that, actually. In
1: terms of research, so you spent a lot of time doing research at Kentucky. Has research changed over the decades? Uh, I, we mentioned the internet coming in the 90s, as a big change. But fundamentally, are you doing similar are you asking similar types of questions, or has the research environment pretty radically changed as well since the nineties?
0: Yeah, research has changed tremendously, and there's been a shift of uh, of research power, if you will, or um or focus from the universities to corporate entities. So mm-hmm. you'll see Google, Facebook, Microsoft. Making advances because they have the infrastructure to do so that uh, many of the universities can't can't make. And while they offer some of that infrastructure for hire, and while our national organizations like the National Science Foundation and others try to build global and national infrastructures that can be used by academic researchers, uh, I think right now the um, the focus has shifted, and it's it's hard to get it back economic power is with corporations, usually not with the government. And so you have researchers competing for enough funding to be able to make advances, but they're competing against uh, deep pocket corporations that can make those advances directly. And I don't know what it's gonna do for the research enterprise of the academic side of things. I think there's gonna be some tension there. When I think of, I'm a
1: historian, I've really benefited from Google Books. Um, yeah, and particularly the stuff that's not copyrighted. So right now it's, you know, 1922 or something like that. Anything before that you get total access to, and they're very clean, tend to be very clean scans. I noticed that many of those scans are coming from universities, like they have University of Michigan or University of Wisconsin on the, in the inside of the cover. What do, as someone who's sort of in that field, what do you make of something like, like Google Books. It's right at that intersection of, it seems like, corporate, and yet they're also somehow relying on
0: university labor or insight. I'm not sure.
1: But what do you make of something like Google Books?
0: Well, you know, I worked at Google uh, as a visiting scientist back in 2012-13 academic year, and uh, was tremendously impressed with what, at the time, they were doing. Follow-on work on Google Books at the time, which uh, included uh, Google Arts and Humanities, uh, what they were calling at the time the cultural institute, creating large archives of material that they could distribute for free, that you could search and uh, and and research. I think those are all really good things, and it you know as as far as corporate social responsibility goes, I mean I think those are those are tremendous assets uh, if they can remain if they can remain open and sort of revenue neutral. Uh, and the Google Books thing, have you played with the ngram viewer? And yes, it's the really idea? fun. I, I don't know how much I yes I played with it a lot.
1: I've, not, I've never sort of footnoted that or something. I, I don't know if it's, I need to know more about it to know if it's footnote worthy. <laughs> but it's really interesting to, to track things, and it, it actually gives you interesting clues on intellectual, cultural trends as you see words come and go over the years.
0: Yeah, it's tremendous, and the, um, the, the paper that was initially written about that work, Stephen Pinker and others, uh, I think it appeared in Nature maybe, you know, it was kind of a seminal um, expose of things like distant reading and other things that you could do with a yeah. large corpus like that. and um, What's interesting is that that feeds in directly to where we are with artificial intelligence right now mm-hmm. because it's those corpora, right, that that the artificial intelligence algorithms are using to be able to do this next step, like large language models, for example.
1: Well, let's get to that. Um, I, I know your talk here at Upper House has AI in the title, and it's going to be something you talk about. And I've heard a few of your comments as you've been with us uh, this Week, but maybe maybe to start it, what has been your relationship to AI? I and I know there's like debates about what is AI, and that depending on how you define it, it changes how you tell the story. But as you understand it, what was your what's been your relationship to AI going all the way back to your time in grad school?
0: Yeah, I'm actually going to talk about this a little bit tonight. Uh, I entered grad school in 1986, which actually was the beginning of this large slide in AI popularity. Uh, and it ended in the um, the AI winter, the second AI winter of the 90s. I came with the idea that I might actually study AI, and I was really intrigued and excited by what I might learn. But what I found when I got to graduate school was that uh, the field was struggling. You know, people mm. weren't making progress. The computing was behind. You could say that maybe the AI people were out over their skis because mm. they had visions and dreams of what was possible, but computationally, they didn't have the underpinnings for that. Is that the winter? Is that what the AI That's winter the is? That's the winter, yeah. Okay. So there were big promises made in the uh, late 70s to early to mid 80s about what was coming, and then it didn't materialize. So by the time I got to grad school, people were a little bit de- depressed mm-hmm. about pursuing those ideas, and and I don't know that I could have even gotten a job had I, at the time, pursued a pure AI PhD. Mm-hmm. I chose computer vision because perception is a part of AI, and it turned out to be a masterstroke because vision and imaging has become a part of almost everything. And, and even now, if you look at the AI breakthroughs, they're almost all image-based. They're built around the idea of generating an image from a from a, a textual query, for example, right. or being able to navigate using um, only images from a camera, mm-hmm. which the, the uh, Tesla can do now. Mm. And Elon Musk's been very vocal. I don't know if you've read the uh, biography by Walter Isaacson In the book, he talks about how he really didn't want to use any sensors besides just cameras. Mm. That's a pure computer vision problem. Yeah. Really interesting.
1: Okay, so that's a big part of of AI, and you've been relating to that then since, you know, for your whole career. What I think most of us know AI based on sci-fi and and sort of certain images of uh, rogue AI, Terminator, and other things. And then, obviously, in the last year or so, ChatGPT and the i guess it would be text based but you can tell it to give you a picture i know in the academic world there particularly in the humanities there's a ton of concern around plagiarism the idea you can just sort of tell it to write you an essay on this topic and then it passes for a you know a b minus and tons of students will do that um is that where do you hope the conversation goes with ai i i doubt it's to the sci-fi <laughs> maybe maybe but what are we missing in the ai conversation based on you know your perspective in it um, and and yeah, where, what should we be paying attention to?
0: Well, I think we should be paying attention to the human side. Mm. Uh, you know, Marvin Minsky defined AI to be you know getting a computer or a or a mechanical system to do something that that you think really only a human can do. That that's sort of the definition of AI, and that definition includes what it means to be human, mm. right? And I think that's the part of the conversation we're not talking about enough because. The things that are uniquely human, telling stories. Does that mean that, that AI is going to be the big storyteller and, and mm. humans aren't? What about human dignity and what about the erosion of or the support of dignity as humans uh, with the things that we invent? So I think that, that it actually gives us a huge opportunity, the development of AI. And AI is a, is a field of computer science is what it is. And it's made up of various techniques that uh, approach this ideal that Marvin Minsky, you know, sort of defined in one sentence. The techniques then come in as things like machine learning, you know, or yeah. other other kinds of uh, names that we have for uh, what ends up becoming this, this field of AI. But I, I think it gives us an opportunity to talk about what it means to be human and to understand maybe better or to refine or to not forget. that That's really what's at stake here. And that's what's central, um, not so much what we're doing with the machine, but how it's going to affect what it means to be human. I, for what I just
1: said about sci-fi, I like sci-fi. I, I read a lot. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, all that kind of stuff, old Star Trek uh, fan. And I found it interesting to just compare where we're at historically, as far as I understand it, with some of the visions of, you know, fictional visions, but visions that were the best of them, really trying to grapple with foundational moral or ethical questions, and then using the imagination to to, you know, set up interesting stories around them. Is there any science fiction, any sort of classic science fiction, or, or anything around AI that you think got part of the, you know, part of it right, or at least a, a moral question right, or, uh, or something like that? I'm I'm hoping you you consume some of that. Yeah, um, I here. did.
0: Yeah, okay. I was a science fiction fantasy reader. You know, in the 70s and 80s, and of course, yeah. Tolkien played a huge, huge role, and as well as C.S. Lewis, as well as C.S. Lewis. And and I read Isaac Asimov, and mm-hmm. I think that would be the the first answer that most people would say in the Foundation series and the, the laws of robotics and that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think that was a huge contribution at the time, because no one was was going that far. We were looking at things mechanistically like sort of the Jetsons, you know, mm-hmm. but nobody was thinking about the deeper questions. And then you get some of the movies like um, the Harrison Ford, Blade Runner, Blade Runner yeah. series, yeah. And, you know, again... You know deep questions that we're going far beyond where we were technically at the time but posing really important questions should we get there with the technology right yeah and blade runner uh, and we'll get
1: off the the nerd uh horse here in a minute but blade runner was uh, a very interesting movie but based on a short story by philip k dick who was one of these very voluminous uh, sci-fi writers of the 50s 60s 70s and he's he's someone i found really along with asimov someone who almost all of his work he wrote dozens of novels and everything else was about this question of what does it mean to be human and using robots androids basically you know robots that look human as the interesting way to question that right so a lot of his stories are about ai's that look like they're human and questioning are they really human or what would it mean for them to you know they're striving to be human, and what does that actually mean? So anyway, I find that, I find a lot of that really interesting and actually relevant to to today, even though you know it was written many many decades ago.
0: Well, I honestly should go back and read some things that you're, you're reminding me now of Robert Heinlein as well. Mm-hmm. Some of the things there were very motivating, and um, even going back to like Aldous Huxley and you know Orwell, mm-hmm. you know there were. There were uh, many strands of, of thinking in those early writers. You know, I've always said the the artists, the writers, the humanity scholars, you know, they're they're really the canaries in the mind, you know, mm. right? I mean, they see things coming before maybe the rest of humanity does. These are these are really important questions. Yeah, and I, I think of
1: I think it was C. S. Lewis, it might have been Tolkien, who talked about um, science fiction as the modern era's mythology. So you know, ancients had myths and and gods in the clouds that did magical things and you'd sort of tell your morale details through those. And today the magic is through, you know, lasers and warp engines and things that can't actually happen, but are the, the way we work through as a culture uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the moral issues that we have. And I think that's, that's probably right. And, and certainly more, there's the you know, hard science fiction, which is much more engaged in the science and trying to actually um, be much more tied to what we know and, and sort of maybe be a little more realistic. But then there's the more fantastical stuff that, uh, that really lets, opens up the, the moral uh, world as well.